Tonight on Talking Politics, the Democratic primary for governor is now a two-woman race, and Sonia Chang-Diaz is going on the offensive. Plus, Charlie Baker's plans to shape Massachusetts politics after his time in the corner office. And the long-awaited reopening of the Statehouse with plenty of new rules that may or may not be followed. Also, the balancing acts of Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. She campaigned as an agent of change, but has gotten some big financial support from several of the city's longtime power brokers since taking office. And her open-door communication policy is bringing its own challenges. We'll get to all of that ahead, but first, a month and a half after former state senator Ben Downing dropped out, saying he just didn't see a way he could win, Harvard political philosopher Danielle Allen followed suit this week for much the same reason. Well, you know, it's just pure math. The caucuses started, and we have a very impressive candidate in the form of the attorney general, and she did her work, and I know we did our math, and there was no path. But in addition to praising current Democratic frontrunner Maura Healey, Allen also panned the system she'd been trying to navigate for months as a first-time candidate. In Massachusetts, she argues it's a lot harder than it should be to get on the ballot. In California, to get on the ballot, a couple thousand dollars filing fee and 100 signatures, or if you can't pay the fee, 7,000 signatures. Illinois, 3,250 3, signatures. Massachusetts, 10,000 signatures plus a set of majority caucus votes in a set of towns and cities that cumulatively add up to 15% of the delegate count. So million bucks, 14 months of work, that's what it takes in Massachusetts. All of which, Allen says, is unfair to people like her and to voters who have fewer choices as a result. But did Allen's campaign fail because of the system, her own limitations as a candidate, or a mixture of both? And whatever the answer, how will her exit affect the contest between Healy and Sonia Chang-Diaz? Joining me to tackle those questions and some other big political stories of the week are Lisa Kaczynski, author of Politico's Massachusetts Playbook, and Boston Globe political reporter Emma Platoff. Thank you both for being here. Emma, let me start with you. Do you think that Danielle Allen has a point when it comes to the structure of the Democratic primary process, or is she looking for something to blame other than her own shortcomings as a candidate? There's no denying that it's hard to get on the ballot in Massachusetts, and as she pointed out, um, harder to get on the ballot here than in other states. Particularly, we know there are really steep barriers for non-traditional candidates, for women, for people of color. There's no denying those are those are huge challenges. That said, if you look even just at the state's recent political history, we can see a number of political neophytes, uh, people who came from outside the system and were able to achieve that. You know, one of them is is Maura Healey, who's now the front runner for governor. She was a political outsider once too. You know, there's. Uh, a Harvard professor, a lot like Danielle Allen, uh, by the name of Elizabeth Warren, who also came from the outside and was able to get across the finish line. So I think it's it's impossible to say there's one answer, right? You know, it, it is a really challenging process, but we've seen that these um, strong political figures are able to do it anyway. The first name that I thought of when I saw the statement from Danielle Allen was Deval Patrick. I covered his run in 2006, and back then, Tom Riley, the attorney general at the time, was supposed to be the Democratic nominee in waiting. And Patrick, Patrick came in, no one knew who he was, and he just completely dominated the race. He, he blew Riley out of the water. So as you say, it can be done. Lisa, when you watched Danielle Allen in action, what was your take on her as a campaigner and a political messenger? 
So she obviously comes from an academic background. And one of the things that she struggled with a little bit throughout her time in this race, which was over a year between exploring and actually running for this, was translating her sterling academic record into easily digestible policies. That was something um, that came up time and time again as she started to roll out policies and including big ones that could have really um, spurred some conversation, like wanting to decriminalize um, substances like heroin. And so that came up on the campaign trail and she had a year to kind of go around the state virtually or otherwise as, uh, you know, in the COVID ebbs and flows to meet with these delegates. And it seems like between early polling and what she was seeing with delegate math, that that just wasn't translating. Emma, uh, let's shift gears a little bit. You have a piece that I just read a little bit before coming into the studio in the Boston Globe about Charlie Baker's political plans. We know he's not going to seek a third term, but he is not intending to exit the arena of public life. What's he going to be doing moving forward? Yeah, so Charlie Baker, uh, you know, the best face and the best fundraiser for Massachusetts Republicans for the last eight years, he's not giving his party uh, the thing that they would most like, which is him running for re-election and, you know, giving them their best shot at maintaining the corner office. He says he can give them the next best thing. So he is committed to fundraising, to advising candidates, to doing some uh, candidate recruitment, potentially holding events, stumping, he says, you know, even as he leaves office, he plans to, to stay involved and to help like-minded candidates, potentially some centrist Democrats as well as moderate Republicans um, win, win elections this year. And um, as, I, as I point out in the story, this is a, a major uh, advantage for Massachusetts Republicans because it comes on the backdrop of a state party that's really in shambles, not only struggling to you know, raise significant amounts of money that they might need to overcome the major Democratic advantages in the state, but even recently to pay routine bills um, there are, you know, the last two meetings have dissolved for lack of a quorum. So without much support from the actual party infrastructure, candidates are going to need to look outside to, to folks like Charlie Baker if they want to succeed this fall. Ed Lyons, the moderate Republican activist, argued in a piece he wrote for Commonwealth Magazine a while back that, that Baker, with this new super PAC that he was involved with, which is connected to what we're talking about here, that he was effectively starting his own political party in Massachusetts, that he was, in a sense, leaving the mass GOP as currently constituted and creating his own organization. Does your reporting bear that out, do you think? You could you could make that case. You could frame it that way. Um, the So the PAC that, that Baker is likely going to be doing a lot of work for is called the Massachusetts Majority PAC. It's run by a donor. Some of Baker's staff have worked for it in the past. Baker said he anticipates that it may raise as much as $2 million this cycle. So that's certainly a significant amount for candidates running. That said, um, there are advantages to having an actual state party infrastructure, right? So before, um, you know, years ago, before there was this tension within the party, before there was this acrimonious relationship between the governor and the GOP chairman, Jim Lyons, there was this really lucrative fundraising deal uh, between the RNC and the state party that took advantage of uh, higher federal fundraising limits to, to pump a lot of money into the state party. And that fell apart because of the you know, widening rift between yeah. moderates in Charlie Baker and conservatives led by Jim Lyons. So it's hard to come back from a, a state party that can't support you, but I'm, I'm sure folks will be happy to, to receive a check from you know, a PAC aligned with Charlie Baker. Lisa, I want to ask you about Sonia Chang-Diaz hitting Maura Healy this week for allegedly being too accepting of the criminal justice status quo. We've got a statement that uh, Sonia Chang-Diaz issued in which she said the wiretapping bill 
Backed by Governor Baker, Attorney General Healy and DAs shows that talk is cheap when it comes to racial justice and criminal justice reform. They've repeatedly proposed legislation that would significantly expand police surveillance while failing to seriously consult racial justice leaders and advocates from over-policed communities. The statement goes on in, in some detail. I'll bail out there. Is this going to be the template for the race, do you think, moving forward? Is it going to be Sonia Chang-Diaz running to the left of Maura Healey, hitting her hard for not being progressive enough and trying to get Healey to play defense? That I think is exactly what's going to happen. And this is probably a moment that Sonia Chang-Diaz has been waiting for um, at least a little bit. You know, with Danielle Allen now out of this race, it is refocusing into a race between her and Maura Healey. She will run to the left of Maura Healey, especially as we see this early embrace of Maura Healey kind of playing to those Baker voters a little bit. You, that gives Sonia Chang-Diaz an avenue to tie the two of them together, even though they are different on policy and from different political parties. And Sonia has these young progressive activists around her, some of the same people who really supported Ed Markey in his run against Joe Kennedy. And they have already been active for her on social media. They are showing up to the caucuses while, you know, Maura Healey will still have the advantage through those just because she's been through them before. A lot of the people showing up, at least anecdotally on the Zooms that I've uh, hopped on, have been, you know, kind of more entrenched party activists. But there are younger Democrats showing up who are caucusing for Sonia, and they will help push this policy. And you've seen that already go beyond uh, this uh, that statement that you just showed. She is already starting to call out um, where Maura Healey might stand on single-payer health care, which is something that Sonia Chang-Diaz supports. And Healey is still forming her platform right now because, again, Sonia's been in this race for a while, and Healey, though she's kind of been looking at this race for a while, hasn't officially been in um, except for just a few weeks now. So she's still forming her platform, which leads to a lot of openings for Sonia Chang-Diaz to really start to make some pointed attacks and call out both Healey's record and where she stands on progressive policies. Lisa, one more state-level question for you before we talk about some Boston City stuff. The State House is going to be reopening finally after being closed for about two years. Uh, what is the plan for reopening the building, and what are some of the questions that linger about whether that plan is going to work? So right now, there are, I think, more questions than answers when it comes to the State House reopening. So what we do know is that masks will be required, as will proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test, either at home or otherwise, within 24 hours of when someone's trying to get into the building. Beyond that, uh, it gets murky. Uh, it's not clear who's going to be checking proof of vaccination at the door. Um, they have said that maybe court officers will be doing it. That was still being negotiated the last time we heard from leadership. Um, it's a question of which doors will be open. Um, you know, the general hooker entrance at the front of the state house coming off the common that a lot of people know is under construction. There's a question of mask enforcement. I was at the state house on Monday and within 10 minutes of being there, I saw at least five people who didn't have masks on. And those are people who are, you know, some of the few people authorized to be in the building before it reopened to the public. I had asked the Senate president about that and she said, we will remind people to mask up. 
So not a clear picture of how that's going to work. There are other questions as well. Um, you know, the metrics that lawmakers will use to reevaluate their reopening rules, the rules for office staffing levels, um, even children under five who aren't eligible for the vaccine. There's a lot of outstanding questions and time is ticking down until they kind of throw open the doors again. All right, thanks for talking us through all that ambiguity, and it is a lot. Emma, you also wrote a piece this week in The Globe about Michelle Wu's inaugural fundraising money and where it's coming from. She ran as a candidate who was a big proponent of systemic change, has talked a lot about doing politics from the bottom up. But the fundraising figures that you unearthed uh, indicate maybe some tension between how she's raising money and that political philosophy. What did you find as you dug into her numbers? Right, so what's interesting about Michelle Wu's inaugural fundraising is not uh, what's new, but what's old, right? So what we saw in the just over a million dollars that she raised um, since being sworn in in November to fund uh, a party that was delayed by COVID and we're told will happen sometime later this spring um, is it comes from the city's traditional power brokers. It comes from lobbyists, it comes from business people. Uh, at least a third of the donations come from folks who are in real estate or have ties to real estate developers. Um, people who traditionally wield a lot of power in city politics. And um, Michelle Wu, as you point out, ran as a different kind of mayor. She's an unabashed progressive. She has promised to blow up the development process in the city. And so it was notable to me to see that um, a lot of these people who were not eager to jump on board with her candidacy earlier when she had you know, a number of rivals who they may have perceived as being friendlier to the business community um, are, now, are now eagerly writing her checks. She was asked about that on Boston Public Radio at our uh, place this week, and here's what she had to say. We're in a time where trust in government is quite low to begin with, and so every little bit of what we're communicating out really does matter to people. I didn't make a single call to fundraise anything for our inauguration. There's a moment of what this means for so many people who had been thinking about what our new administration represents and the changes that we need and um, to have resources to be able to celebrate with everyone, to be able to lift up how we can come together as a, as a city after an election. That moment of transition is really important to an inauguration. But obviously there's the question moving forward of whether the people who've given money for this will expect something in return. We shall see. Lisa, you wrote a piece or a, a short piece at the top of the Political Massachusetts playbook talking about how the mayor has been engaging with her detractors on social media. What was the gist of what you found? Basically, she is engaging with them more, and there's a reason behind it. Um, you know, it's actually kind of funny. I was writing a piece a few weeks ago for Politico about how mayors were dealing with the COVID surge, and I was telling other mayors across the country the level of backlash and vitriol on racist and sexist that the mayor was facing over this, and their advice to her was to stay off social media. But that is the opposite of what we see Mayor Michelle Wu doing. She wants to confront uh, the misinformation and disinformation going on about vaccines and her mask and vaccination policies head on. And she wants to take back control of this narrative from a small but vocal group of people who are both online and, as Emma's reported, showing up in front of her house um, and, and kind of pushing back against this. Um, so this is her way of making sure 
that people understand what she wants to do, why she believes that this is the way forward for the city, and that she's really sticking to her guns with this. Um, this is her saying that she will not back down, and she will continue to push back on these people and push her policies forward. I'm curious about whether you think this is going to be effective. I spent a little time in the Twitter sub-universe of, of people who are extremely opposed to the mayor's vax mandates. And the way they talk about the mayor, it's almost a theological conflict. They see her as evil. They use the word tyrant. Uh, they think she's causing irreparable harm. I'm not sure that if you think about the mayor's policies that way, you're open to convincing. We've also seen them hop on some of the live online events that she does because she wants to be so transparent and take over the conversation. Do you think that this is going to work for her going forward? Right now, this is what she kind of has to do to, again, take back control or try and keep herself in this narrative. What you're seeing is a lot of the trickle-down effects of national politics, and the mayor is aware of that. So this is something that, no, it might not change. This might just be, you know, again, as we've seen this hyper-partisanship, and this, again, goes beyond, as you said, just the mask and vaccine policies with the language that they're using and what they're calling out. So right now, this is her strategy. This is what she believes that she can do to combat this and stay on message. We'll see if that changes over time. All right. Lisa Kaczynski, Emma Platoff, thank you both for being here and talking through all of this. Appreciate it. Thank you. Today wrapped up the inaugural week of a brand new morning news experience here at GBH with plenty more to come in the weeks ahead. I'm joined now by Paris Alston and Jeremy Siegel, the new co-hosts of Morning Edition. Paris, Jeremy, good to see you guys. Good to see you. Thanks for having us. I know some people who are watching will know about you already or have seen introductions that you've offered in other fora on WGBH, but for anyone who might have missed it or might need a refresher, Tell me a little about yourselves. Paris, let me start with you, since I used to work with you. Don't mean to give an advantage <laughs> for that reason, but what, what should people know about you? Yeah, so I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm in Tar Hill. Um, I did a lot when I was younger, and one thing that I think will fascinate your viewers is that I went to what I call a government camp, but it was Girl State. I, don't, I think Girl State's in Massachusetts, but we learned all about municipal and state government. I thought it was very fascinating. Um, so that's, that's like just to let people into my quirks, right? <laughs> you really did think it was very fascinating? I, at first, I didn't want to go at first. I was yeah. like, what is this? But then they were like, we'll feed you and you can like stay right. here for a week. I'm like, oh, this sounds kind of nice. And then by the end, like I was literally crying because it was over. So that was really interesting. <laughs> um, and so then I went to UNC Chapel Hill. I studied journalism and global studies there. And shortly after I moved to Boston, I've been here for about five and a half years. Jeremy, how about you? I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. I grew up mostly doing gymnastics. That was the big thing for me when I was younger. It was five hours a day, four hours a day, about five hours, five days. Let me start. Do you well, mind so was this, no, 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 that's fine. But was this, was this a level of intensity that would have put you on the track to being, say, a competitive gymnast in college, for example? Yes, actually, I started out the very beginning of college on the gymnastics team. I went to UC Berkeley for college um, and was on the team for about two weeks before I decided that it was just going to be way too much for me. I think I was a little different than Paris where I wasn't the kind of person who was doing a lot of stuff in that way. Um, I was not at government camp. I was not at journalism <laughs> camp like Paris was. I wasn't a journalism major. You weren't a Girl Scout. I was not a Girl Scout either, so I'm genuinely impressed. <laughs> still though, still though, the amount of intensity required to be a D1 athlete, I mean, I would think that would kind of crowd everything out. Oh, absolutely. And that, I mean, that was a big part of why I decided that that wasn't for me in college. Yeah. But um, I loved doing gymnastics. It was it was a great experience growing up. It was time intensive, but it was a lot of fun. And 
Something that not a lot of people can say that they did. Yeah, yeah. And you are coming to, to WGBH, forgive me, GBH from Politico. <laughs> Drop the W. Right? You're coming from Politico? <laughs> yes, I'm coming from Politico. So let me ask you, that leads into the next question I want to run by you guys. Both of you, as you've just said, came from somewhere else. So did I. But I've been around here for a while and kind of gotten used to the way people in Massachusetts do many things. I'm wondering, with your fresher eyes, uh, what you make of Massachusetts politics, is there anything about the way things operate in Massachusetts that differs from other places you've been, uh, or maybe differs from things nationally that are striking to you now that you're here? Sure. It's night and day. Um, we hear a ton about national politics as news consumers, and it seems a lot of the time like a lot is going on. But what I noticed covering national politics in D.C. day in and day out is that it's a lot of talking. And it's a lot of grabby headlines, but not a whole lot really happens. It's people yelling at each other a lot. Mm -hmm. And just being here covering politics in Massachusetts only for weeks, it's amazing to see how much happens at the local and at the state level, things that actually affect people's lives. Decisions hmm. are being made every day, whether you agree with them or not, who knows. But things that actually impact people's lives are happening. So that's the biggest difference. Another big difference, and I know this is recent for Massachusetts and for Boston, but we were covering the, um, the gubernatorial race and the recent dropout. And my mom texted me after that story hit and said, wow, all of the names you just mentioned are women. And you just had a story about Michelle Wu, who's a woman who's the mayor of Boston. And I know this is a recent change in Boston, but that is a fresh thing also coming from DC That's politics. really interesting and good to be reminded of uh, that things are trending in that direction because I know for so long it has not mm -hmm. been that way. So uh, it, it's, again, it's a positive development I think that's worth highlighting. Paris, what about you? And I know that you've, you know, you were here, you were at BUR, now you're back here. So you've been covering Massachusetts politics compared to, for example, North Carolina. What's different? Well, I would say it's, it's a lot busier and maybe even a lot more amicable. <laughs> I think in North Carolina, politics are very contentious for a number of reasons. It's a purple state, yeah. right? It's in the South and there's all kinds of things that come with that. Um, you know, people, we've been on the map for things like our bathroom bill or our voting voting rights legislation or, or voting restrictions. Mm -hmm. um, so all things that I wouldn't necessarily say are good reasons to be on the map. Yeah. But I think Massachusetts gets highlighted a lot because of its progressive politics and because because every time there's sort of a challenge to that, it's always really pushed out to the side. I mean, think about the Massachusetts GOP, which some people would almost say is non-existent. Or, you know, we have Governor Baker, who is a very moderate Republican. So I think that's really fascinating. But one pet peeve I have with Massachusetts politics is that as progressive as they are, there are things like happy hour, like bottomless, you know, like having those things that you would have in D.C. that help make this, this city and this state fun for yeah. millennials, for young people. Those things aren't really move, progressing as much. And Massachusetts hasn't really made a whole lot of waves on new legislation as much. And, and with the exception, of course, that we just passed the um, licenses for undocumented uh, citizens, undocumented right, immigrants. Right. So... I think progressive in some areas, still some ways to go in others. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. There is this weird dichotomy, you're right, because you have Massachusetts being the first state to legalize same-sex marriage. But as you mentioned, we don't have happy hours, which I thought back when I was your age-ish was totally bizarre when I came like, what do you mean? What do you mean there's not a happy hour? So uh, in a way, your point about about 
looking at things through a, a younger person's lens, raises the question I want to close with you guys with. Is there a sensibility uh, that you bring to the coverage of politics in the slot that you guys have on Morning Edition that is going to strike people as different from conversations they might hear on Greater Boston or Boston Public Radio or All Things Considered or you know various other outlets that we have here at GBH. How do you guys think you'll do things differently? And I'll stick with you and give Jeremy the last mm -hmm. word. So I would say, I mean, I think it's easy to think about talking about politics in the morning as something that might be a little sleepy, maybe some would even dare to say a little boring. Maybe. But we want to make sure that that's exciting still, right? Because politics are embedded in our everyday life. They inform so much of the things that we do, so much of what we see around the city and around the state. And so we do want to plug people in in a way that makes them feel connected and not disconnected. We want them to be like, huh, I never really thought about that. Or, oh, I didn't realize that that's what this law or this policy does. Or, oh, I didn't even know who that politician was before, but now I'm paying more attention to them. That makes me eager to hear how you guys do this moving forward, because I have a much more expansive conception of politics. I remember when we kicked off this show, we got an email from a viewer who said, oh, you shouldn't you know, have the name politics or the word politics in the name. <laughs> Polit and I, I think of, because he thinks you know, purely electoral politics. That's what he thought we were referring to. And I think of politics as kind of how humans order their lives together and how we try to have a just society, be good to each other, whatever. Mm -hmm. So, Jeremy, uh, how about your sensibility when it comes to this stuff? When I think about covering politics on our show, I think about talking to my younger brother who, Paris and I are millennials, my younger brother is actually Gen Z, and he approaches politics, politics in a very different way than I do. Really? He's, he's not reading the news in the same way I am. He's getting news from social media, he's getting news from Reddit. He might be listening to public radio to hear me, but he's not necessarily sure he getting <laughs> his news from no public doubt. radio. And I think that by operating from that standpoint, by talking in a way where we're talking to people who might not have that, you know, reading the morning paper every mm -hmm. day look at politics, mm -hmm. we can reach a different audience and have conversations that are not just more understandable, but more relatable and more interesting and more inspiring for people. And I think we'll be coming from a perspective where we're not afraid to say, I don't know how a gubernatorial race works. I'm fine coming from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. That's a great approach. Eager to hear how it works out moving forward. Jeremy Siegel, Paris Alston. Really good to be talking with both of you here in studio. And congrats on getting the first week under your belts. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks for having us. You can hear Paris and Jeremy on the new Morning Edition every weekday from 5 to 10 a.m. on GBH 89.7, streaming online at gbhnews.org and in the GBH News app. At the end of last week's show, we invited those who identify as progressive to share what that label means to them, and several of you delivered. While Evan defines a progressive as someone who will fight to change society that benefits the working class, Kate defines it as someone who looks out for all constituents, making sure that those without money or a powerful standing are heard with interest matching the rapt attention so often given just to the wealthy and the powerful. David believes that increasingly progressive must come to mean taking an anti-partisan approach to issues, individualism that prioritizes negotiation and compromise to promote the greater good. Similarly, Gloria says being a progressive is about fostering momentum for all of us to move forward together, to abandon hostility to one another and encourage the cooperation of the human race on this planet. Greg told us, I try to prioritize people over property. And Steve wrote, I support social policy that progresses from the failed traditional past, the good old days that never were. My version of progressive puts human rights front and center. 
Finally, Russ says, as what was politically imaginable expanded leftwards, what counts as progressive moved to the left as well. Today in Massachusetts, Russ adds, that means backing Medicare for all, fair free transit and rent control, and shifting funds from police and prisons to community needs, among other things. A lot to ponder there. Thank you all for writing in. That's it for tonight, but do come back next week and keep sending your thoughts on progressivism, stories you think we should cover, and anything else you want to share. The email is talkingpolitics at wgbh.org. The website is gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics, or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. For now, thank you for watching, and good night.